So. Hey. Hey. <laughs> I just want to get away from my standard hey. <laughs> so you and I are both, we've both DM'd things before. Yeah, yeah, we're big time nerds in that way. For those not in the know, I'm not talking about direct messages. <laughs> I am talking about Dungeon Masters. <laughs> Freaking nerds DMing each other. <laughs> Yeah, we're just bragging that we, like, know people, I guess. <laughs> but uh, one thing that happens to DMs all the time is you'll throw someone in a town and they'll, you know, your players will go up to the bartender and be like, what's your name? <laughs> yeah. Great, give me a fake name right now. Who's behind that bar? Razarg. Razarg, what, what kind of guy is he? He's a half-orc, he's kind of burly, uh, he's missing one arm. So he has to like kind of get creative with polishing the glasses, you know? Mm, Yeah, yeah. And he talks, I'll give him a real country accent. (laughs) Hey, name's Rizarg. Come on in, sit down. Oh, I like that. Rizarg. (laughs) I like Rizarg. I'm considering a country accent for my next player character, and I'm pretty excited about it. Ooh, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. I like those because they're easy to do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're intimately familiar with them, so it's pretty easy. (laughs) Oh. My go-to method is just looking at the keyboard and picking a letter for it to start with. All right, give me, we we are talking to a local noble. Okay, a noble, okay. Her name is Nimora. She is half-elf, and she worked her way up to be a noble, so she's very proud of it. She thinks you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. A meritocratic noble, got mm-hmm. it. My character's looking at them askance. <laughs> yeah, she came in the bar and she got lost. She did not mean to come to this bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was enough RP. All right. <laughs> Sorry, we're big nerds. That was great. All right, what are we doing today? Today we're going to answer some listener questions. Fuck yeah. We've got another bag of them. We didn't quite get to everything that was posed to us. So if you're wondering, what about mine by the end of this? Hey, well... Try to get to you eventually because we try to, you know, just kind of wait for the pile to build up a little bit and then take most of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which one are we starting with? You want me to read this first one? Sure. Let's do that. Okay. This is from Noah. And he says, in your newest episode and many others, you discuss the abolition of the state apparatus. I think this was from a while back. So it was probably a different episode. And it reminded me of a question I've been asking myself for a while now about how criminal offenses would be handled under a non-federalized system. Okay. Obviously, with the overthrow of capitalism, there will likely be a huge reduction in crime. But even with access to mental health infrastructure and less emotionally charged acts, I imagine there will still be some fashion of murder, violence, etc. Whether it be for non-capitalist related things like love, lust, or otherwise. So what would stop each commune from enforcing their own arbitrary brand of justice? Mm -hmm. He gives an example, like chopping off a hand for stealing. Do you know what the penalty is for stealing? (laughs) Oh, Jasmine didn't even know she had to pay. (laughs) You know, the the twist is she's actually from like a a post-capitalist commune. And she's just like, pay? (laughs) Pay? (laughs) Oh, that's great. Anyway, where, you know, someone else might just do community service hours. So he was thinking, you want to hear his idea? Yeah. He was thinking about a voluntary union that agrees on a standard baseline of human rights, but Mm -hmm. without coercion. 
But he's he's worried about communes agreeing on this baseline or like wanting to join in the first place. Yeah. But yeah, he wants to know what we think. Sure. Yeah. No, this is an important topic. Broadly speaking, right? What would justice look like beyond capitalism? It's kind of hard, hard to to kind of figure out. In general, right? We're looking at the proles being in charge instead of the capitalists, the workers, the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No longer the capitalists in charge. Whatever we are going to, right? If we're doing a Marxist sort of state-run thing, or or anarcho-communism, or however, however we're doing it, mm-hmm. it'll be a different group in charge. Uh, and whatever legal system is going to be there, it won't be like above the people there to keep them under control, like the system we have now, right? Which is just for the interests of the capitalists. Yeah, yeah. This is a question all by it posed much differently and much more aggressively, usually. <laughs> <laughs> Which whenever you do talk about communism, someone you know, a more conservative person loves to ask, like, what happens if there's a shooter, you know? Like, mm-hmm. what happens yeah. if someone gets a bomb? And you're like, why does your brain immediately go there, first of all? Like, are you okay? Yeah, if you start talking about abolishing the police or something, they'll do that, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's just a very... It's an, it is fascinating to me that mostly men jump to this situation right away. <laughs> well, we're fed, you know... Action movies. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, you don't. You're not like required to watch that if you're a man or something. Anyone can. But there's just a strong know, in American culture anyway. There's this is strong like. They're all Jack Bauer. Uh, like yeah, like Jack Bauer, like Twenty Four style. Mm-hmm. Think about the possible chaos or unhinged, you know, situation that could happen. Think about the worst situation. I don't yes. Know. Yes. But anyway, what would we do? What would we do? So. The big deal here is that, you know, working class interests would be at the forefront instead of the capitalist interests. So we're focusing on, like he mentions in the question here, kind of focusing on human needs, focusing on rehabilitation instead of retribution. For sure. And I think that Noah's kind of right that, like, there will be a huge reduction in crime. Or at this point, you're kind of more talking about just, like, harmful behaviors, you know? That's going to go down, right? I mean... For sure. If you're transitioning from socialism to communism, or you're just jumping straight anarcho whatever you're doing. If you are taking care of people's material needs, right, people aren't going to be able to screw each other over with property, mm-hmm. and they're not going to have an incentive to do so either. Yeah, you don't need to steal because you have all your needs met. Yeah. You're not going to be trying to put people in line in terms of drug laws or anything like that. That too. You, you know, if someone does have a substance abuse problem, then you'll be dealing with that, like with rehab and stuff. You'll have yeah. universal health care to help them deal with that or with mental issues. Um, that would also, you know, be covered under that. We're trying to help people. But I guess, you know, also like Noah said, you will still, you know, yeah, you're going to see the occasional murder. Someone's going to kill somebody. Somebody's going to fuck somebody else's partner. Yeah, things are going to happen. I don't want to say that that's like human nature. I don't either. I think that's too far the other way. Yeah, well, because looking at it and saying, well, oh, people are just, you know, bad. I think bad things will happen and people will do bad things sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that like humans are naturally this sort of greedy evil thing yeah no me either i think that as as leftists we don't believe that like if you we've said i think we've said this before here if you pull a boot out of a lake it's going to be wet and if you pull someone out of capitalist society they're going to be 
have they're going to have all these things that society has taught them to have these values yeah you know? i i mean definitely the first few gens gonna be a little rough <laughs> yeah i think noah's interested in here in in particular about how uniform society is going to apply like their brand of justice mm-hmm. right uh one thing we want to we do want to point out is that we don't know <laughs> <laughs> no idea and that's something I found very interesting whenever I'm researching this stuff and or I get curious about like how would we do this under communism? One of the things I find, especially from more kind of orthodox or like more hardline like Marxist Leninists or Maoists, or really, you know, grounded in theory people, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. will say, you know what, it's completely useless to look at that. Predicting what what's gonna happen in um communism, like you can't. You don't know. Yeah. And they say they will kind of go on to say that's kind of utopianism and that's bad, you know, try to come up with the theory Mm, beforehand, you know, don't do that. And Marx wrote about that and, and Engels wrote about that in our readings that we've done is they, they kind of say, yeah, the utopians thought they could dream it all up and make it happen. And that doesn't work. That's a good point. That's a good point. I have a lot of utopian tendencies. So (laughs) I I guess I wouldn't go that far because it's fun to speculate too. (laughs) Like it's just, it's entertaining. I don't know. I, I guess I just mean, yeah, we don't know, but let's go ahead and speculate. Yeah, let's have fun. It. <laughs> <laughs> it will end up differently in different places, but hey, let's let's check it out. So different ways to do this. If you're going like a state-run approach, right? Mm-hmm. You could just, uh, uh, you know, if you have a worker state or whatever, you can just uh, make that uniform throughout your nation. That's Easy. true. That's, that's pretty simple. <laughs> you could even, if you do that, like say, hey, you know, if this region wants to do it this way or whatever, determine it at that level. That's fine. But he's kind of approaching it more from a... Maybe an ANCOM sort of sense. Yeah, that's what I get the feeling, too. Yeah. So the voluntary union idea that Noah has, I think, kind of reminds me of something called communalism. Ooh, what's that one again? Well, it's from a guy named Murray Bookchin. And it's this idea of kind of like these loose federations really grounded in the local level. There's also a kind of a version of this almost called democratic confederalism. Okay which is by someone named Abdullah Okalan. Okay. Both of these theories kind of have, I've read a little bit about them. I'm not an expert, but you have local communes. Yeah. You know, local kind of autonomous councils of people who kind of govern, you know, anarcho-communism. They do their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And these communes can link up together with other ones, but they're completely voluntary unions. Okay. You send like deputies that mm-hmm. you can instantly recall. So if these deputies like go over there and, and do something you don't like, <laughs> get back here. Uh, and they decide with other deputies from this region, you know, they decide for the whole kind of confederation, whatever that is, what like the agreed upon human rights, he mentions kind of like, you know, oh, you don't want to like be chopping people's hands off. Okay. You know, or you don't like the punishment for this should not be torture or the death mm-hmm. penalty or something. So you decide kind of what your all overall confederations uh, baseline things are, and you go with that. In that situation, if one commune was, you know, in this... Eye for eye dystopian thing. Yeah, they originally agreed to this, but then they decide, yeah, let's start, you know, <laughs> just really being <laughs> harsh about things. Then the other ones could like vote to say, hey, let's... Uh, Let's tell them, let's kind of like tell them they can't do that because here's the kind of breakdown is that one communes, it's completely voluntary. So they could just Mm -hmm. be like, yeah, we don't want to do that. (laughs) Yeah, actually I'm out. (laughs) Also in both of these systems, it's totally fine since it's voluntary for them to secede, 
for them to just yeah. be like, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, yeah. You're ultimately going to have a lot of variation, I think, mm-hmm. within these communes. Now, ideally, I think one of our, maybe one of our beliefs, I guess, is that in putting this in the hands of everyone, you'll end up with a more or less fair system just by virtue of giving everyone a say. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully once everyone has a few therapy sessions and works out their aggression, they'll vote for, like, humane options. Yeah, that's uh, that's ultimately what you would kind of have to rely on with this super non-coercive uh, hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting because, I mean, if they came from a hyper-developed state system, mm-hmm. then they would have some sort of, they would already have some things that they share, you know? Like, I, I was just thinking, like, well, okay, if you're, you've got a whole bunch of communes, you still have to work together for things like, you know, your transit system. And, like, it is probably easier to work together on, like, really big things like healthcare and stuff like that. So there, you're probably still going to need some form of cooperation with those things. So maybe that could be kind of used as some leverage of, like, hey, we're going to, like, cut off the trains that go to your town, <laughs> you know, like... I, I, I imagine yeah. there would be some shared, uh, I guess, resources between communes. You're right. Yeah. With that's that's a very good point. That yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. That your sort of economic interdependence or whatever would mm-hmm. still, to some degree, be there, right? Unless you really want to be going back to the land, sort of. Yeah. Like, unless they literally have replicators and they can or, just yeah. feed themselves and they don't give a shit. So maybe I don't true know. at that point. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's a, that's an that's an awesome uh, question to kind of look at. Is if you are kind of going that more commune route, then you probably are going to have a wide variety. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, to wrap up there, there's going to be a lot of you know variation if you're doing that approach. At least there's a possibility for a lot of variation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like we said, there is that sort of like interdependence or the incentive, I guess, for an alliance. So. Mm-hmm makes sense for there to be some sort of cooperation and through that some sort of unity in terms of this is if you're going to be a part of this group this is what sort of uh rights you have to respect yeah yeah i'm i'm hoping we can get some of those that'd be good (laughs) (laughs) all right do you want to go to this next question yeah let's go to this next question uh do you want me to read it sure uh this is from juniper who says hi I have ADHD and the attention span of a doorknob. Do you have any recommendations for how to study theory and pay attention? Oh, man. I, so I, I want to preface that neither of us have ADHD or nor are experts in it. True. But So these are more just general study tips, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'll go first. I learned about something the other day on Twitter called the reverse Pomodoro method. Well, it sounds great. Right? (laughs) Have you heard of the Pomodoro method at all? I have not, no. So it's this thing where you set a timer and you work for like 25 minutes and then you take a break for five minutes and that kind of thing. Okay. And there's like apps for it. But um, the reverse of that is if you are having like a low functioning day, like for me, I would use this like if I'm having a bad like depression day or something, it's like... You do whatever the fuck you want for 25 minutes, and then you just spend five minutes like, okay, I'm going to like clean my room for five minutes. Okay, I got you. Basically, yeah, you just flip that shit. <laughs> nice. And that's that's kind of my whole philosophy on, on studying and doing things I don't super want to do is it's just to go really easy on myself and 
give myself way more time than I think I actually need. And mm-hmm. then when I'm done, eat like some cake or something <laughs> to reward nice. myself. That's important. Have those rewards have kind of a a treat, a positive reinforcement. Yeah, yeah. This is a super basic tip, but working backwards from your deadline and doing the math to break it into chunks, always mm-hmm. very helpful for me. I let myself go down a few rabbit holes if I'm researching, but I usually just try to open a new tab and save it for later. I'm uh, I'm not like you. I'm not as tempted by those as you are. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bad for me. <laughs> yeah. As far as like actually reading itself, especially like theory or just heavier text, mm-hmm. I take a lot of notes. I am very visual, so I underline, I highlight, I doodle. And the doodling kind of helps keep me motivated, too, because I'm like, what if there's a funny joke I can make on the next page? Like, I'll keep going. (laughs) (laughs) I love the doodles. They're great. Thank (laughs) you. If you are a Patreon, you can see them. They're ridiculous. (laughs) And make your notes like your notes. Like, mine are very casual. Like, I'll be like, LOL, and like, fuck, and just like... Just make them fun so that when you look over them, you'll remember, you know, or make them however you need to make them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your own style. Mm-hmm. I'm also very verbal. So for me, if I'm prepping something for the podcast, like if I'm going to be kind of taking the lead on a discussion, I'll practice. I'll like go take a drive in my car <laughs> and talk to myself. Mm-hmm. Also very good if you haven't had a therapy appointment in a while. <laughs> Just pro tip. Therapy in the modern world. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Or like I'll practice on Kyle or something. Be like, here, I'm going to talk to you about this. <laughs> See if it makes uh, sense. Yeah, I do that with Abby. I'll try to teach her whatever. The... You try to teach her communism. Yeah, I try to teach. Yeah, it fails <laughs> miserably, but. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I had a question for you. I know mm-hmm. you have your own study tips, but I want to get back into listening to audiobooks. Nice. I have a Zen's People's History of the United States Ooh, on Audible. Awesome. I started reading it like in college or something and then I, uh-huh. I dumped it for some reason. Yeah. And how do you take notes? <laughs> so I didn't when I listened to that. Mm-hmm. I did not take notes. And so consequently, like I remember it as kind of an experience and some things here and there. But yeah, if you're going to take notes on that, if, if it's in the car, it's hard. I mm-hmm. really can't. I suppose you could pause and do like an audio memo or something with it. Mm. But if I'm just listening to it and like playing, a lot of times I'll just listen to it at the house or something, play video games. Yeah. Google Docs or just the notes app mm-hmm. or an old school journal. Like just, I just pause and, and make my note at the timestamp. If I think it's something I want to go back and listen to. If you are using, you said this is on audible. If you have like the Kindle book with it, like they, a lot of them have like a combo thing. Oh, okay. It will keep your place like between the two mediums. You can so then you can pull up the the text version and like copy it and paste it over. You can like highlight and make a note that way in the Kindle app itself. Oh, that's cool. I don't think I have that. That's good to know. You know, m- maybe other apps have that feature as well. Cool. What are your study tips? Okay, so I want to start with my actual practice, like what <laughs> I actually do. I love this because I do not practice what I will preach here in a second. But I want to show you what I actually do. So first <laughs> off. I put it off till later. You know, future you is a champ. They can totally handle it. For sure, for sure. <laughs> Procrastinate. That's one big <laughs> sin of mine there. Uh, also, every little tangent, get distracted by it. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, now is a good time to read about the Habsburg dynasty or the War of the Seventh Coalition 
or whatever else. Like, <laughs> I just, yeah, I go down the rabbit holes oh, and gosh. all of them. And I also make way too many notes. I just type up like walls of text. It makes me feel better. That's, I don't think any of those are necessarily good, <laughs> but it is one of the, it is uh, something I do. <laughs> Behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. Um, actual advice. I kind of work best with a, when I'm reading a, of a piece of theory or a book or something is reading through kind of soaking up big chunks of it at once. Mm-hmm. So either reading through the whole thing, if it's, you know, short enough or like chapter, a chapter of it or something, seeing how that all works together first before, yeah. before going back and being like, okay, this, you know, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. That makes sense. I also really think it helps to kind of let things soak. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, Especially if you're having trouble concentrating it, concentrating on it, sometimes getting up and pacing around uh, or just like waiting till later in the day and thinking about it. I like to see how things, uh, how those thoughts that are kicking around in my head, kind of how I see that play out, I guess, in the world. And finally, uh, in terms of reading things, I do like to listen to music while I'm doing so, instrumental mm-hmm. music. Uh, I'm very auditory, so... Second, people start singing lyrics. I start <laughs> listening. And so that distracts me. And then you start Googling the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> but silence can also be, you know, distracting to me too. So kind of just, I don't know, classical music, which is very Cute. like 60-year-old person. But <laughs> Oh, that reminds me of another tip for mine is I will pair it with something I like, like, you know, a chill playlist that I like. Or like one time I like took a bath and read theory in the bath. <laughs> so you can do that if you want oh the letting things soak note i liked because Mm -hmm. i i do that a lot like when i type up notes like i kind of have a big wall of text problem too like i'll just be like like i call it word vomit that's how i write my book that's how i do all kinds of things (laughs) and then i i leave it for like a whole day and come back you know same Mm -hmm. thing like when i make a painting or when i make a comic like you you gotta know when to walk away yeah yeah for sure well i hope those helped yeah, like we said, we don't, you know, we don't have any unique insight to it. This is just kind of stuff that works for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, next, we have a question from Cameron. Okay. And I kind of wanted to give the introduction and then say what Cameron said, because it makes more sense that way. Okay, yeah. Uh, so it was about one of my notes from the Communist Manifesto episode. Mm, that was episodes two and three. Uh, And the passage I was talking about was where Marx says, so this is Marx here, the condition for capital is wage labor. Wage labor rests exclusively on the competition between laborers. The advance of industry, whose involuntary promoter is the bourgeoisie, replaces the isolation of the laborers due to competition by the revolutionary combination due to association. The development of modern industry, therefore, cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which the bourgeoisie produces and appropriates products. What the bourgeoisie, therefore, produces above all are its own gravediggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. And I'm glad I had previously learned what that meant. (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Yeah, no. So I initially summed it up by saying this, and this is what they had a question about. This is what we're saying. What I tried to summarize last episode, maybe in episode one, I'm not sure. 
what I tried to summarize last episode, as Amazon and Google and all that get bigger and bigger, monopolize more and more things, crowd out competition in the pursuit of profit, they're also combining their workers. As they do that, employers can't keep wages as low because workers aren't competing with each other as much. They aren't undercutting each other. They aren't even teaming up to increase their wages. And as that happens, the bourgeoisie can't accumulate capital the way they used to, and the wheels come off. They've dug their own graves, as Marx puts it. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, and so Cameron asked, so why would workers stop competing with each other? In low-skilled jobs, is there not always the risk or threat of being replaced by someone who is unemployed? It's a good question because we talked about that. What do they call it? The mass of unemployed people or something? They had a fancier term. The reserve army. There we of go. Unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. This, so this was a great question. Cameron is correct here, and honestly, I think that I just kind of was not correct in my previous interpretation. Ooh, got slammed. Yeah. No. I was looking back <laughs> through, it and I'm just like, nah, I don't know. I, I don't think that. <laughs> I don't think I had it right before. Um, this is the, called the reserve army of labor. It's basically the pool of unemployed or underemployed or kind of precariously employed people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they keep wages low because there's always that threat that they could be brought in. Uh, it's also expanding all the time because, mm-hmm. you know, of automation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Improving technology, which the capitalists are required to pursue, right, to survive. That was yeah. one of Engels' big things we were reading about. So, yeah, yeah, wages and thus capitalism is not just going to be defeated by reducing competition among workers and, like, messing up the wage thing. Like, that's not how it'll work. So I I, kind of got that wrong, I guess. (laughs) Okay. But a, a better explanation of what Marx means is like this. So wage labor is based on competition, right? And capitalism advancing is going to replace that competition with all the isolated workers everywhere. And it's going to bring them together into more of a teamwork with more combined workers, right? The, uh, the organization of, of the like factory or the restaurant or whatever it is, the bakery, mm-hmm. as we were saying in our, <laughs> in our episode. And then that combination, as that unfolds, workers are going to start realizing their class interests more. So it's not about the wage mechanism. It's about like them realizing that they are a class and getting more revolutionary that mm, way okay. organizing okay so marx just kind of lays it out that way remember lenin in what is to be done said that that wasn't you know enough that they wouldn't make that leap without mm. you know a vanguard party doing the thing so leftists disagree definitely on what What's on what that it? will lead to but yeah interesting that was the revision i wanted to make to all right <laughs> to my notes <laughs> well thank you cameron yes thanks uh next this one's from carol i just wanted to read it real quick okay (laughs) it just says it's two sentences i'm listening to your podcast nice you are so wrong about libertarianism ouch okay well end of email (laughs) hey i mean maybe we said something that was what did we say about libertarianism do you remember i don't know we probably just Mm. shat on it Mm. that sounds like us (laughs) That sounds like something I would do. Now, libertarianism, I guess, does have a healthy skepticism of the bourgeois state. I mean, you yeah, know? they're not they're not all wrong, but they're mostly wrong. <laughs> I just love it. I love the lack of detail. It's very good. Carol, if you do want to tell us more specifically what we could, how we could kind of 
address the shortcomings of our knowledge, we're welcome to it. Sure. (laughs) Ever more conciliatory, I guess I am. Yeah, right? (laughs) I'm I'm not so nice. All right, next is from Chris, and he asks about the general strike in India. It was funny. I remember we released our Kerala episode, like, the week the strike was happening. Yeah. And I felt bad because we didn't really cover it at all. We were just mm-hmm. like, let's let's ignore it. So, <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about it. What what happened? Chris asked uh, to kind of shed some more light on kind of what happened, on what general strikes are, uh, how they fit into communist goals, what maybe why we aren't hearing as much about about this. Yeah, I only saw it like twice on Instagram. Yeah, I didn't see much either. Uh, I did see like an article in jacobin about it and mm-hmm. kind of did some research to when we were when we were researching that but um i mean one big reason of course is just it's a strike you know you don't really want <laughs> the corporate media doesn't isn't that interested in telling you about hey you could just not go to work <laughs> <laughs> right especially in the world's most populous multi-party democracy like not necessarily what you want yeah to tell people about um, so, yeah, what happened in that situation? So it was uh, originally a, there was a general strike in India mm-hmm. and it started November 26, 2020. So this is actually before when we were recording that ge- oh, the yeah, general yeah. strike started. It involved around 250 million people. That's so many fucking people. Yeah, that's like almost, you know, that's that's what, almost all the states, right? Yeah, that's like 70, 80 short of the United States. Yeah, Jesus. And they had some demands, you know, the unions and and the people taking part in the strike issued demands of a monthly income to all families earning less than a certain, you know, like the income tax threshold or whatever, Uh Uh, a free monthly grain ration, 200 guaranteed days of work and better wages. This is modifying a a previous bill, which was only focused on like the countryside and only had Mm. 100 days. They wanted to improve that. Okay. Changes in the labor code. They also wanted to repeal this bad law about farming, about agriculture, that was like too corporate friendly, basically. Okay. They wanted to end privatization of public sector corporations, stop forcing government workers to retire early, and also a universal pension. Okay. Those are good things, I think. Yeah. uh, So that strike went on for a little while, and then it was followed up by the farmers' protest, which is still kind of going on. Okay. This isn't so much of a work stoppage or anything. It's it's more just like a demonstration. Yeah. It's yeah. still been massive. And so on December 8th is the one you're thinking of when we, that came out like as we were doing that episode. Mm, okay. That was when they were going to have a Barat band, which okay. is like a, uh, a, a big demonstration. Okay. And it was supposed to be like nationwide, like all of India. Cool. We're going to do this and they were, it's. Similar to a general strike, everyone just goes out and demonstrates and says, like, screw this. They just shut everything down. Mm-hmm. Like, sort of a form of civil disobedience in that way. I think they ended up, like, not calling it off necessarily, but, like, scaling it down. They didn't want to, which is silly because it's the whole point of the thing is to get in people's way. But they didn't want to get in people's <laughs> way, so they Aww. did it, like, for only part of the day. Bummer. But, yeah, no, uh... The farmers' protest is still going on. It's like kind of varied in in intensity, uh, but it's focused on those anti-farmer laws. Uh, the government has kind of been saying like they want to negotiate, maybe, but I don't have a lot of faith that they're gonna that they're going to like give in too much. Yeah. To the demands there. 
Yeah. To the other part of Chris's question, uh, let's get into the general strike because yeah. that's super cool. <laughs> Dude, I would love that. <laughs> so the general strike, I think we've talked a little bit about it before. Mm-hmm. It's where a bunch of workers refuse to work, not just at one work site or in one company, but in general. Fuck yeah. It can be like on a community scale, a town, a city, state, or region. It can be an entire industry. It could be an entire nation. That would be cool. Yeah, <laughs> that would be wild because like it can even be what they refer to as the general strike. What is that? This would be a social revolution where the people end up taking over the economy. They end up throwing the bosses out. They end up in charge. That sounds rad. Yeah, not everybody agrees that that can happen. Uh, (laughs) Different types of leftists, you know, Marxists, for example, or Marxist-Leninists or whatever, they'll say, like, the general strike, you know, it's a work stoppage. Mm -hmm. You do, like, work does have to happen. People do have to, like, produce things. Mm. So at some point, it's going to fail. Yeah, because the rich people have enough resources to hoard to wait them out. Is mm-hmm. that it? That's, that's kind of their argument. Unless the working class is like ready to take control and do it themselves during a general strike. And that, mm. and so, you know, those groups might say they won't get there or whatever. Yeah. But anarchist leaning communists, you know, and especially anarcho syndicalists, the ones who want to do guy. things by labor unions, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They see this as like the big revolutionary means, you know, the, the at least practice for it until you know the general strike it kind of is sharpening your knives until you're ready i think it's a good idea i don't know like i agree there you would have to do a lot of organizing beforehand in order to make sure people are taken care of Mm -hmm. but if you did enough of that i mean i think it's got some legs man i I think it's it's really it's very threatening without actually having to shoot people which i like Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's, you know, there there also, I guess, conversely, is a danger to threatening the system too much. Eh, that's uh, fine. <laughs> you end up... Uh, Getting shot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I see what the Marxists are saying, sort of, you know. they yeah, Not a lot of labor unions are teaching you, like, how to how to literally take over for yourself. Mm-hmm. But it, if, it, if it is a actual a militant revolutionary union... And they're actually preparing for that. Like, we have seen general strikes in the past where workers do take over their workplaces or their communities and manage it themselves on a smaller scale, whether that's a work site or a city. Cool. And we've even seen that during general strikes here in the United States in our history. When did that happen? They had a general strike in Seattle. Oh. In, uh, in 1919. That's a long time ago. Okay. Yeah. More than 65,000 workers were out there. They just like got all the unions in the town. Uh, They had demanded like a pay increase. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Their boss, uh, one of the corporations, like a federal, uh, a federally backed corporation set up for World War I, Mm -hmm. like sent a message to the metal factory, like bosses. And said, like, you better not give these guys a pay increase or we're pulling out. (gasps) But he messed up and sent it instead of the to the bosses. He sent it to the metal trades council, like the union. And they were like, fuck you. We're going on strike. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So they had a big general strike and like they shut down the the city for days. 
cool. and they had set up like all this, uh, all these institutions to kind of like, you know, provide for people and stuff. Mm-hmm. They still kind of like ran the city. Uh, they had like volunteer unarmed patrols and stuff. They rocked it until, you know, the, the cops came in, set up machine guns and went to town. What the fuck? So, yeah, no, I mean, we have examples of people being able to do that on a wider scale, too, right? Like, mm-hmm. I kind of doubt, like, like you said, tons of organization to actually get that to, to be pulled off yeah. on a whole wide scale. But, I mean, if the conditions are right, like in the Spanish Civil War, if the mm, country is yeah, yeah. unraveling and you had Catalonia mm-hmm. able to pull this off. Revolution in Catalonia, they set up like an anarchist government there, Fuck you yeah. know, anarchist government and anarchist <laughs> commune sort of thing, you know? Yeah. You know, people took control of the city. That's pretty cool. And they ran that. And that was like basically de facto through the labor unions there that did that. That's awesome. A general strike that basically turned into a government. So it's, you know, it's totally possible. It's a thing. Yeah. General strike is super dope. We should do it. (laughs) I love it. We should be planning for it now instead of uh, recording a podcast. But hey. Probably. Is what it is. (laughs) We're shits. (laughs) Okay. This next one, uh, this is not a question. It is a fun fact from one of our listeners, Anthony. All right. Uh, he says, I'm listening to episode 17. Uh, that is, I believe, the yeah early history of socialist parties in the United States. And he says that we were talking about Milwaukee, which is where he lives. And he tells us that they used to have a, a socialist mayor, Frank Ziedler. Nice. What do you, uh, did you look into Frank Ziedler any? I did. He seemed pretty cool. Tell me about him. Yeah. So this guy, yeah, he was a member of Socialist Party of America. Cool. That's first off. Really cool. (laughs) First off, very cool. Uh, Let's see. He says he got into socialism because of like the philosophy of it. Like he's very into peace and equal distribution of economic goods and cooperation. I like that. I, I love this quote for him. Like he's listing all the things he likes about it. And at the end he goes, those were pretty good ideas. (laughs) <laughs> just like mm-hmm. that's great yeah that's a good good summary just good button that's a like a review blurb on the back of like the communist pretty manifesto good. or something those are pretty good ideas five stars <laughs> he read a lot of like eugene debs and then some other guy called norman thomas who i did not have time to look into but maybe he's cool i don't norman know Norman thomas ran for president uh as so- for the socialist party of america uh six times jesus he was a Presbyterian minister, very big time pacifist, but also, you know, also socialist. So an interesting combo there. Oh, that makes sense. Because this guy was also kind of like that. He was a Lutheran. Okay. He was he was kind of like that religious sort of socialism, socialist. Yeah. Re- like that's, it's that's an interesting combo in our <laughs> times, like to think about. But like, if you think about the kind of, there's always been a radical element to American you know, American religion, I guess there's been branches of it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about in the civil war time, some of the big time abolitionist leaders and everything came from this, you know, religious background and stuff. That's true. That's true. Uh, anti-war activists as well coming from. So yeah, it makes sense. It's a thing. He wasn't big into like straight up communism. Uh, didn't want to associate himself with like the USSR or anything. A That's rude. all right. Ziedler. We still, we can still team up on the things we agree on. <laughs> One thing I found that I loved, have you ever heard of the Red Falcons? Uh, is that a soccer team? or That no. sounds cool. It does sound cool, though. So it was a children's socialist group. Oh, damn. 
Yeah, so it was basically like an alternative to Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts because they saw those as like being too religious and too like conservative and mm-hmm. like kind of have a military hierarchy. Yeah. And apparently it originated in Germany and they eventually set up branches in other countries and he was part of it at one point. And I'm like, I want to send my child to Red Falcons. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I bet they don't have it anymore. I don't think they do. <laughs> anyway, so this this guy's <laughs> career. Yeah. In 1938, was elected Milwaukee County Surveyor as he ran as part of the Progressive Party, which was working with uh, Socialist Party of America at the time. Okay, yeah, we talked about them, I think. I think we did. 1941, he got onto the Board of School Directors. It was a six-way race, and he got 14% of the vote. Uh, nice, that's the way to do it, man. <laughs> just just get five of your buddies to run and say don't try very hard. More opponents, <laughs> more people to beat. Yeah. Uh, so his brother, Carl, was mayor in 1940, but then Carl enlisted in World War II in the Navy, and he died, like, on active duty. Oh, man. So, like, this guy, it kind of it made Frank more popular, basically, so he was able to run for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he, he ran in 1948 and was elected out of 14 candidates. Busy oh year. Oh, my gosh. What is... <laughs> Can you imagine? How does, how does this happen? This is great. This is before Google. Like, you would just have to read about these 14 motherfuckers. <laughs> well, but on the other hand, you're getting the newspaper delivered to you every day or something. That's you know? true. That's like, true. You do have a way to find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he did he run openly as a socialist like yeah, in his first campaign? Or did he like... I believe so, yeah. By the way, I'm a socialist. By the way. No, he was just like straight up socialist. Like, he he won and he was reelected twice. Uh, he declined for a third term for health reasons. Uh, What's really interesting is that, like, this is in the 50s, and Wisconsin senator was fucking Joseph McCarthy. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, that's fun. Oh, man. Some extremes there. On one side, anyway. Right. Uh, But he did pretty good. So, overall, during his term, Milwaukee really grew. It, like, nearly doubled in size. They had a big, like, industrial boom. Mm -hmm. They were annexing municipalities and stuff. I thought this was interesting. He really didn't like the suburbs. Yeah. There's this quote. The city consults with suburban governments, but we do not believe they have reason for existing. (laughs) Put them on blast. Okay. God, he sounds like me. (laughs) I love it. What even are the suburbs? Why are they there? Yeah. Fuck that. (laughs) But he did some cool shit. He, uh, He established the state's first educational TV station, upgraded parks. He bought the city's first garbage trucks, like... I guess 1948. Yeah, I guess that's when that would happen. I, I, I don't know. I know precious little about the history garbage of garbage history. collection. Come on. But it does sound interesting. Now I'll probably be reading about it. <laughs> probably. He built fire stations, fixed up roads, constructed low-income and veterans' houses, and he insisted on those housing units to be integrated, which was a big deal at the time. Ooh, whoa, yeah. Yeah. And and that kind of got us some trouble. So... The black population in Milwaukee tripled during the 1950s. And obviously some racist people didn't like that. What? They always, <laughs> I thought they always reacted fine to that. That's their favorite, right? Mm-hmm. No, so apparently political enemies spread a rumor that Ziedler had put up billboards in the South asking black people to move north. What? Oh, they went out and accused him of that? <laughs> yeah, they, that's what they thought. They were basically just trying to use the fact that there were more black people moving into town like as I'm a point that's against Ziedler's him. That's fault, yeah. Yeah. Old school QAnon rumors or whatever, like old school fake news. <laughs> basically, yeah. 
he was a supporter of the civil rights movement and was like open about that, which which got him in trouble. But I'm glad he yeah, did it. Yeah, obviously. That's cool, though, that you were mentioning kind of all the reforms he did in addition to the civil rights thing, the the civil rights stance. He's kind of doing all these kind of local small improvement sort of thing. Yeah. What what I was reading, he, he kind of had that sewer socialism stripe. Yeah, that's awesome. So after he took a few gigs, uh, but eventually he, he was part of the Socialist Party. I guess they reformed in the 70s and he became the national chair. Okay. He did run for president a couple times. All right, Frank <laughs> I think maybe just once. 1976. He got 6,038 votes. Oof. 2,500 of which were from Milwaukee County. Hey, representing <laughs> his hometown, real like really liked him. So good job. <laughs> but his platform was very cool. His platform included protecting the environment, ending the arms race, addressing world hunger, passing the ERA, empowering workers to sit on corporate boards of directors, Damn. and prioritizing mass transit over cars. That's cool. Yeah, he would have had my vote. Yeah, I would have voted for this dude for sure. He also wrote some stuff uh you know obviously some stuff on governing and socialism some milwaukee history also poetry and modern shakespeare fanfic so dude that's what that's a wild little tangent but hey and children's stories (laughs) were they like socialist poems or was it just i don't i didn't do that much digging sorry (laughs) (laughs) it's cool so yeah i need to read about Garbage truck history, as well as uh, Ziedler's poems. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you can find them somewhere. They're probably great. He's that's <laughs> yeah. that's cool though. He sounds he sounds like he was a really cool dude. The most recent socialist mayor of any major American city, Milwaukee. Shout out! I put a grimace emoji next to that. Like, oh, we need to get another one of those in there. We really do. That's a while <laughs> back, man. Right? I mean, Bernie was mayor of. Burlington, Vermont, but Burlington, Vermont's not very major, so. Yeah, yeah. Like, you would think they'd be able to pull that shit off in, like, San Francisco or something liberal, right? Mm, there's too many tech Too many business there. people, yeah. I'll read the next one. Okay. This is from Gabby, and she says, Recently in quarantine, I've been meditating a lot more. I go to online Zoom classes, and I thoroughly enjoy the sessions, and because they're an hour long, I can really get into it. And a few nights ago, I had what is called a realization, which Mm. is basically a spiritual awakening. All right. Congrats, Gabby. (laughs) Afterwards, she felt very unproductive, and it was strange. She didn't want to do any of her schoolwork. At first, she thought it was really weird, but she did some research and found that other people felt the same way. Essentially, when you have a deep spiritual awakening, you question everything, including the work you are doing. You Mm -hmm. ask yourself, is the work I'm doing meaningful? Do I enjoy it? Should I give it my all? Okay. And she writes, I realized that spiritual awakenings, like the one I had, could really dismantle the capitalist system. Ooh, okay. If the masses all decide that they don't want to work boring jobs and make money for their already rich bosses, it would be devastating for the corporate world. True. I mean, True. we just talked about strikes, man. That would be pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. It may be good for us, bad for them. She writes that meditation has become more and more of a trend, and some workplaces even recommend it to their employees so they can release stress and be more productive. And she finds that very interesting because like the idea of using meditation to be a better worker when it could actually do the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) 
also notes that, you know, a lot of meditation can make you want a life where you have the leisure to meditate for multiple hours a day. Yeah. So yeah. What do you think about this? The, the first thing that jumped out to me was this comparison of, yeah, that, that companies do definitely, it's more and more of a trend of encouraging, Mine does it. yeah, encouraging wellness, encouraging meditation, this mindfulness or whatever. I mean, I think their incentive is it's a cheap alternative to actually <laughs> providing health care. I just agree. tell them do meditation. I totally <laughs> agree. <laughs> but the, the cool thing that uh, Gabby mentioned here is that difference between just a little bit of it to be a productive worker, right? Versus a mm-hmm. lot of it when you do have this breakthrough and then you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Mm-hmm. It reminded me of like how people, they microdose with LSD. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or like mushrooms too, and weed. Yeah, like uh, this is supposed to increase your productivity or something. And business type of people will be like, "Oh, this is you know, this is great. This is what really unlocks your potential or whatever." Whereas if you take it as intended, you know, or you know, like you said, mushrooms or whatever else, if you if you take that like to actually experience like a psychoactive effect or something, usually that's kind of like a you know a, a shortcut kind of to this sort of this sort of uh, realization, this sort of breakthrough, you know? For sure. That does make you question like what you're doing and everything in the same way, kind of that meditation can, you know, you can (laughs) kind of misuse it, I guess, to to just like produce more for the capitalists. For sure. So this made me think of too, the second shift. Have you, have you heard of that term? Is this, yes, I've heard of this. So this was uh, popular in like second wave feminism. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was the idea of like, okay, yeah, you go to work. And then when you come home, guess what? You get to do more work. (laughs) Yeah, domestic labor. (laughs) Yeah. Unpaid. Yeah, yeah. So this made me think of one of the reasons I think we are kept so busy is so we don't have time to think about how shitty things are. You're just trying to fucking survive every day. Mm Mm-hmm. How many fucking leftist or revolutionary, you know, stirrings and podcasts and posts and whatever <laughs> else started during the beginning of the pandemic where absolutely he all of a sudden have more time on it no wonder they think it's a crisis that they got to make sure to get us back to work <laughs> yeah we're sitting here thinking too much basically yeah so yeah if we actually had you know a four-hour work day or something we would have the time to sit around and think about like how shitty this is and realize that it's like wow this is very unjust and i shouldn't have to do this and I, we've, we've talked about this before, but capitalism basically, it's incentivized to barely keep you alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just enough misery that you are ground down so where you don't have the energy to revolt, but not so much that you will definitely revolt. Yeah, because the whole point is to increase your profit. And the way you're getting your profit in the first place is by is by buying, you know, wage labor, is by extracting from people their labor power. And paying yep. them enough to keep them alive. If you don't, I mean, like from the capitalist point of view, if they don't do it, someone else is going to do it better and they're out. So like yep. only the people who are actually, you know, exploiting and not, we don't mean like sweatshops necessarily because there's ways to like, you know, get more productivity out of your workers and still seem like you're being nice, I guess. But if they don't do it, someone else is going to, it's like they're imperative. Oh, for sure. For sure. And and that. Kind of brings me to my next point, which is just the overall commodification of wellness culture. It's so gross. <laughs> like, just the idea of, like, 
meditation and, and yoga and mm-hmm. all these like very ancient and traditional practices being just turned around and sold for a profit and yeah. used for like corporate bullshit. Like, I mean, my job definitely offers this kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, they're not doing it just so they can be like, nice they are doing it so they can one you know good pr seem like they're doing nice things Mm -hmm. and two they're hoping that you feel slightly better so you work harder yeah yeah that's that's ultimately what's in it for them what do you think about the potential of this to dismantle the capital system as gabby mentions here if everyone were able to have this sort of an experience that was one of the big things in you know in the 60s and stuff was this Mm. whole like what was the phrase? Uh, tune in. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Yeah, yeah. We get everybody, you know, <laughs> and they just like, if they, man, if they break through, if they figure it out, we can all just return to being kind of chill. I don't know. <laughs> Here's the plan. We're going to mail a whole bunch of LSD <laughs> to everybody. Yeah. No, just kidding. And I say, we would never do that. Sure. Well, I don't know. Mm, it sounds like a hard way to get there because you don't have enough control over what people will actually get to. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean like, and even doing this through meditation, uh, you know, there's just big chunks of people who don't believe in it. Don't have mm-hmm. the time for it. I think that's my biggest thing is the time. I, th- I think this question at the heart for me, at least just brought up the fact that like we are, we are overworked for a reason, you know, like they don't want us to have time. <laughs> yeah. I think I think I definitely agree that more people it would be great if more people could get to this sort of point. Mhm. Cuz yeah, man, and, and you can you know, it's not spiritual maybe, but but seeing like getting a different lens to view the world through, I think is one big thing that I've gotten through this podcast and doing more research into actual like theory, you know, figuring out what my views are more. Mm-hmm. has given me like uh, you know i guess a different perspective or i don't know improved in that way like it's you know a more sense of purpose in that regard you've grown yeah yeah no we talked about this in our i think our queer theory episode like i only started kind of thinking about gender like once mm-hmm. i had time for it in lockdown that's what happens when you have time is you actually figure out who you are yeah yeah for sure interesting stuff yeah great question gabby Hey, I got a really, really good question for you from a super hot and okay. cool, smart listener. Their name's Christine. <laughs> is this from you, actually? <laughs> this is, okay, it's, it's actually from me. This has just been on my notes app for like a month. Yeah. All right. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this very cool, hot person asks, do landlords artificially drive up the price of housing? If we didn't have someone owning a bajillion houses, wouldn't houses be overall cheaper because they're more available? This is a short answer. Great question, first of all. Thank you. The short answer, <laughs> the direct answer to your question is yes, landlords do drive up the price of housing because it's, you know, more demand. Mm-hmm. So yes, to a point, housing should end up cheaper um, if it were more available with landlords out of the picture, right? Okay. One approach to doing that would, this is kind of like, Social democratic approach would yeah, be yeah. like, hey, let's, uh, you know, you can't rent stuff out to people anymore. Fuck yeah. You just can't do the landlord thing. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, what would you have to do? So like at that point, apartments, there's no way to do it besides that, I guess, unless you're selling them. So you could leave the uh, landlords in charge of it and just say you have to sell the units. By this date. Yeah. Or 
you could also say we're going to like buy them from you. Like you could nationalize it or Mm -hmm. do that at the local level, whatever. Landlords would probably start selling off like single family rental homes, just Mm -hmm. selling those on the market. And that's where you would kind of see that price kind of decrease because there's so many of them now Mm -hmm. out on the market. I think this would kind of, you know, okay, this would help with Mm -hmm. like the homeless population. We've talked about this before, but there's so many vacant units out there. So this would help with, you know, providing social housing, decommodifying housing and starting to provide it for people. If you're, if you're slowly, gradually doing this, you know, you could charge like a, like an upkeep fee based on your income or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal, but I mean, uh, <laughs> can I you do, imagine? Yeah, this would be crazy. <laughs> like you have people on Twitter now be like, "My son's a landlord. That's his only income." And I'm like, "Well, tell him to get another fucking job, man. I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's yeah. not a skill." <laughs> now, you know, this is not to say that like land landlords that manage their own properties do do some labor, some I mean, things, but mostly isn't it just calling people to do things? I feel like pretty much. You, I guess you could have a handyman slash landlord. If but. you're on a small enough scale, it could be, yeah, that you are the guy, I guess. You yeah. Know? But, um, and some, you know, people kind of manage their own like rental properties, I guess. Very small scale. But yeah, you could just always find another job. I mean, people get automated out of jobs all the time, you know? Yeah, get over it, brah. I think one of the things that when you ask this, like the price going down, remember mm-hmm. that it's only going to go down to a certain point. Oh, yeah. And then they're going to stop selling them, basically? Pretty much, yeah. Because, I mean, we already have a ton of housing supply that's, that's out there vacant. The updated numbers for that, because uh, we, we mentioned those in our landlord episode, remember? Mm, yeah, yeah. The updated numbers, the latest estimate anyway from quarter three of 2020, 14,246,000 vacant units. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is not an unusually high number. This is the lowest number since 2002. Jesus. <laughs> you know, How many homeless people? More than half a million, 568,715. It wouldn't even be a chunk. Nope. You get one landlord out of like, I don't even, I don't want to do the math on that. Very few landlords would have to take a loss to house all the homeless people. Oh yeah. Yeah. You could easily do that. My point, I guess, is that we do have plenty of housing already. So when you do kind of increase the supply by... Mm. cutting out the landlords you are going to dip you know lower the price some but to a point right at a certain point they're going to stop they're going to on their end go on strike and not sell you the houses and stuff that's crazy that's so nuts that's the that's that thing we were reading about in marx and in engels is the crisis isn't about scarcity it's about when you can't pay off the capitalists when they can't get their profit they take their ball and go home God, just straight up greed. Gross. Yeah, but also required. It's not just a personal failing. Remember, we can't have nice capitalism. They have to do that. That's true. Okay. Bummer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it would help, though. We talked about that earlier scenario. Like, that's very unlikely, given our political situation. (laughs) Oh, for sure. It could help. Uh, All right. Our next question, uh, we actually just got this one last night. It's from Richard. I, I This question really, it hit me a certain way. Let's, let's read it. All right. <laughs> uh, first off, he gives us some great compliments, which is, which is very nice. We love it. Yeah, Thank I love you, it. Thank you, Richard. And he brings up, he says, Christine is clearly very intelligent. <sighs> Thank you, Richard. I agree. <laughs> and plays a role that helps people identify with the confusion anyone new to this body of work will have. 
but this denigrating your own intelligence to do it, well, it bothers me. I understand your point, but surely there's a way to help the audience and acknowledge they might feel like they're not smart enough, Mm -hmm. but it's just that long ago they talked differently and their circle used an especially diffident way. I don't know what that word means. (laughs) I guess fancy of talking because they were German philosophers. The new reader and Christine are not lacking in intelligence. They are lacking in experience with the material is all. Can you explain mm-hmm. that without playing into misogynistic stereotypes of smart man explains to stupid woman? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this email hit me in a certain way. Yeah. <laughs> First off, I want to give a quick caveat. I don't think I've ever like explicitly announced it or whatever on the podcast, but I, I don't identify as a woman anymore. I identify as non-binary. I use they, them pronouns. Yeah. So for future reference, we rarely refer to each other in pronouns on, on the show. So yeah, that yeah. Makes sense. So it doesn't come up much. Fair enough. But I understand how someone could take that away from this show. And like, I just, I want to include this question because like, I don't want people to take that away from this show. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Please please don't think that's what we're doing. And I I don't think he means that we are doing that, but that like, it can be, because he does say like playing into kind of Mm -hmm. the stereotype. So I guess it feeds it maybe. Yeah, and I, I don't want to come across as like defensive or any of that shit. Like, yeah, I think this sure. is a good point to bring up. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I guess we do kind of engage in like, I'm dumb or something like that, right? <laughs> like, I, I couldn't figure this out. This was too smart for me or something. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I did it while reading this question <laughs> <laughs> and lots in our earlier questions today. I guess it's a little bit of a shtick. Like, I, I know I'm smart. Like, (laughs) I know this about myself, like, both you and I did very well, like academically in high school Mm -hmm. and college. And like, that's just kind of our thing. We're nerds. We're nerds. (laughs) I think part of it is like, I'm a very casual speaker. Like, that's just how I talk. And (laughs) I am the opposite, I guess. Yeah, you're very flowery. People quite frequently are like, they they will comment on like, what is that word or something or... (laughs) I don't know. I, I think it's just one of the one of the things I tend to do. Mm-hmm. Why use a few words when many words <laughs> will get the point across more uh, loquaciously, you know? <laughs> Meanwhile, I write like LOL in my notes and stuff because like that's how I communicate with people. Like my whole job as like a designer, as a cartoonist is to distill concepts into really short, fast, easy reads. Mm, yeah. Like the one of the ways this podcast started was I made a comic about the healthcare system and you helped on it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was me cutting your text, being like, this is too long, can't fit this in a panel. Like, yeah. no one's going to get that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, and that's just like what I do. I'm just like, I just want to get to the point, you know? Mm-hmm. And I want to explore the details. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think some of it is maybe generational too. I think that's just kind of millennial humor is very self, what's the word? Self deprecating. Self deprecating, that's the word. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I think I think it's just a thing that we do. I don't actually believe it. I think it's just like a, I would way rather admit that I don't know something than pretend that I do. For sure. Because I, I think people don't do that enough. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I straight up don't know what this is. Can you tell me? <laughs> I think we both do that is kind of admit, nope, <laughs> no idea what that is. But. <laughs> no clue. Tell me. But yeah, and just kind of our dynamic, I guess, we're casual with each other. Sibling dynamic, sort of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We could do one thing mm-hmm. if we did want to change tone or, you know, change the bit a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I had one student last year who 
at the beginning of the year, she'd always be like, oh, I'm dumb or whatever. Like, just Aww. like would say this like a lot. And like, yeah. no, you're not. You're in, you know, you're in pre-AP. Like your, your work is great. Mm-hmm. You're not dumb, you know, but she would just say this like yeah. about stuff. That was just what she would say. And I, at some point was just like, so you're banned from saying that in here. You like cannot <laughs> say that anymore. Oh man. And that was just the rule. Yeah. Yeah. And so she didn't get to say it for the rest of the year. <laughs> wow. I don't know if it improved her confidence any or not, but we could do it. I mean, I feel like I'm already way too confident. <laughs> <laughs> so you do this as a, as a way to compensate for that and like reel yourself in? I think so. I was talking to my husband about this last night because, you know, I had a bee in my bonnet and I was like, I think that I'm smart. I you think guess that you're more I think that I'm very smart. intelligent than most people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And like, I'm snooty about things. Like, it's just a thing about me. Like, I'm, I think I'm hot shit most of the time. And that was not always the case. Took a lot of therapy to get there. Now that's, so yeah, that's, that I guess can help listeners for, um, kind of get in terms of your standpoint of intelligence. But I do think Richard has a point bringing up the part directly about like understanding theory oh for sure you know because like i don't want the audience to think that when you're going through this and you're like what the hell is this guy saying (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's not it's not on you like he says like they're german philosophy this is first of all translated from another language Mm -hmm. and translated from another language in the 1800s that's a good point is that when you are reading theory on your own you shouldn't feel stupid. You shouldn't feel inadequate when you come across passages, chapters even, where you're just <laughs> like, what? What is this? I don't Yeah, get for sure. Yeah. And I don't want any of our listeners to feel that way. I hope that we never come across that way. I think in a lot of ways, that's why we have this podcast too, is to, tr- to basically translate some of this stuff. Because it's like, I just don't have time to, you know, totally digest all these wordy theory things. <laughs> Yeah, and I am, I you present <laughs> a finished product or, or, or a sort of finished product um, <laughs> whenever I'm saying, okay, so what he means here. Yeah, you had to translate it too. Yeah, this usually is not just like, oh, I got it. Like sometimes it is, but most oftentimes it's like, what what even is this part? <laughs> like I'm I'm pulling it apart. One good resource for me is the glossary in the Marxists.org uh, website. They have like a glossary with terms and stuff. They go into more detail to kind of flesh things out that you're wondering about. But yeah, man, I'm like, I've got 20 <laughs> tabs open on two different windows uh, trying to figure this out whenever whenever I'm translating it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot to go through. And I definitely have the easy job on this podcast, which is just like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> so but yeah, to sum it up, I guess. I'm smart is the smart. point. Yeah. <laughs> You're smart, brilliant. I am here to make sure we don't get too high a ratings on Apple Podcasts. And <laughs> oh my gosh, no, not a thing. No, people love you. As far as like the smart man and like stupid woman thing, mm-hmm. I I definitely have seen like you know women and people who are assigned female at birth do lean into that stereotype sometimes. Yeah, I th- I think a lot of it is a defense mechanism and like. I mean, we're taught that that is like a way to seem attractive and stuff like that. So like, yeah, just likable as a person, likable for sure. Yeah, for sure. But 
I'm not into that. I, I do it as a joke. I do it as just like a way to be relatable and just like, cause we, we've all done that where we're just like, I don't even know what the fuck that's, that's saying. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've all been there. A great input there. I think from for sure, Richard to help clarify for our audience where we're coming from. Oh, I also want to point out like I, there's lots of different kinds of intelligence. I think I'd kick your ass on emotional intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> What even is covered in emotional intelligence? I don't know. Just is this like, like how to comfort people when they're sad? I'm not good at that. It. Okay. I'm not okay. good at that. <laughs> Shit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing what to do in different social situations. And then also like being able to identify your own emotions. Like I feel bad today. Why is that? And like digging into that. It's therapy. Nah, I don't got that. I don't got that. <laughs> I can help other. I can give advice, but I don't like do too much introspection about my emotions unless I'm, I don't know. Usually not. No. <laughs> it's crazy. So I'm just a bag of emotions. It's, it's good and bad, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. And I, I also don't think you have to be smart. Like I, you know, we talk a lot about how like your labor shouldn't define you. I also think your intelligence shouldn't define you. Like, you don't. Know, it's fine. You're still a person. You still are a good person. <laughs> That's true. Unless you're a bad person, and you're dumb. That's true. My, we have, a very dumb cat. <laughs> I love him. Even like by cats, cats are, you know, not as smart as us. That's fair. No, but yeah. he's dumb compared to other cats, but we still love him a whole lot. He's my favorite. In <laughs> fact, he's my godson. But humans can, you know, be as smart or dumb as you want. Just be you. Do your thing. Do your thing. What an uplifting note to end <laughs> on. <laughs> do your thing. Overthrow capitalism. Imperialism sucks. Yeah. Sounds great. I'm into it. <laughs> Okay, so uh, hopefully these questions that we've answered here have given you a little little something to think about. Yeah. Hopefully you learn something that you didn't know before, maybe about the Red Falcons. <laughs> I still want that so badly. Yeah, they're cool. But yeah, what do we want to learn about next week or what do we want to discuss? Well, we've been teasing this for a long time. I think we're finally <laughs> at a point where we're ready. Yeah, <laughs> we've been reading Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano, and I think we should talk about it. Yeah, this is going to be different than our previous reading kind of episodes because we are not taking this passage by passage, or that, that we would, would be have the rest to start of the podcast. Yeah, we just have to start a side podcast for that. <laughs> It'd be a good one. Like someone should do that. Oh yeah, but we'll be covering. Just kind of, I guess, our overall impressions and takeaways and commentary about uh, more about like, the, I guess, the themes or interesting things that came, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I've, I've got a lot of feelings about this book. This is, this is a book that's like, I feel like it's just lodged underneath my skin and now I just walk around with it all the time. It's great. <laughs> that's good and bad. <laughs> it's good and bad because it's also a bummer of a book. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we'll be covering that, talking about that next week. All right. It's a long one, so get to reading. We've been teasing this for a long time, guys. Come on. <laughs> get it together. Just just, just read a summary somewhere. It's fine. You'll, we'll tell you what it is. Yeah. You don't have to read it. We'll give you the TLDR version. In the meantime, you can find us on the internet. We are on Twitter, at Teach Communism, on Instagram, at Teach Me Communism. 
You can send us an email, teachmecommunism at gmail.com. You can send us questions for a future Q&A if you didn't get your question in on here or if you just thought of a cool one. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps people find the show. So please do that. Rate and review. We are on YouTube. If you prefer to listen to podcasts that way, look us up there. Yeah. And finally, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash teachmecommunism. You can donate $5 a month and you get access to all of our notes for each episode. Uh, most of the time, they're they're mostly Grady's notes. Sometimes I have notes. <laughs> <laughs> this time you have notes. You have notes in this. Yeah. We shared notes this time. We weird. shared. That was weird. Yeah. Was I could good, see you typing but... in there and I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Loser. And we are going to be donating the proceeds from this Patreon to a local mutual aid fund. And we are happy to announce we have finally picked one. <laughs> We're going to be donating to Feed the People Dallas. I mean, the name kind of explains it. They feed the people. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's black-led, women-led. Mutual aid organization, not charity. Just know that money is not like lining our, our capitalist pockets or anything. <laughs> no. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for going through these listener questions. I like when we do these because I've mentioned this. I I read a lot of advice columns, so this makes me feel like I'm cool. You get to be an advice columnist in this? Yeah. I do that on my Instagram sometimes, so. Yeah. I like pretending I know things and knowing things I'm smart. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) And uh, I like researching random things. So Good. It works. (laughs) <laughs> you know what sucks about this whole smart conversation? Hmm. In my notes for Open Veins, I started doing this thing. Well, I found myself constantly writing summaries, and yeah. I would just write Christine's dummy summary TM in front of them <laughs> and highlight it a certain color so I'd yeah. be able to scan. So now I have to rename that. <laughs> Accessible summary. Hmm. Christine's summary for the people. For the people's summary. The people's summary. Yeah. We Christine's did, we did it. Summary. Yeah. We workshopped that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll see you. Well, we won't see you. That's not how podcasts work. You guys can tune in <laughs> next week to. That's why you do the outro. Us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would. I would be messing up the same way trying to do the social thing. Uh, I think we have a <laughs> Twitter. At. <laughs> so yeah, guys, you can tune in next week for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Keep it sleazy. Bye.